You know, I do lots of interviews and have for many years, but rarely do I get a chance to do an interview with somebody that I'm really, really excited to talk to because this guy has lived an amazing life in and around the music business. Uh, and, and if you grew up in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and you're a music fan in the Midwest, the Caesar Engler production who's on the top of every one of your concert ticket stubs. Pat the Caesar joins us. The book is Hard Days, Hard Nights, and it looks back at Pat's amazing life. Pat, where are you today? Are you in, in the Berg? Yes, I, I live a little bit outside of Pittsburgh, but yeah, never left the Berg. Well, I did live in LA for a while in New York and in Las, you know, Las Vegas, but I'm a Pittsburgher. A Pittsburgh guy. Hey, let's go all the way back. Tell me about what life was like as a kid growing up in the DeCesar household. What do you remember? Well, I, you know, I came from a typical poor Italian family. My dad came from Italy and went right to the coal mine to work and had 10 kids. And uh, we never, he never made enough money. We never had enough to eat, you know, and uh, it was just poor. I mean, dirt poor. And uh, but he insisted that uh, I had four brothers and uh, four sisters. But he insisted all the boys play the accordion. I think when you are born as an Italian, you come with an accordion. <laughs> you, uh, you're it's like an appendage. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, my dad encouraged me a lot. I mean, uh, my dad uh, was just the greatest influence in my life, you know. And as if you read my book, you'll you see why with with the Beatles, you know. So, Pat, uh, you said ten kids, which is something that, that people today can't even imagine. Ten kids. So that was not a quiet house, and I would imagine meal times must have been amazing. You got to get to the table quick, or there's no food on the table, right? Well, you, you're, you're right, and we also had, uh, there was a tremendous amount of respect. We never sat down until our father came home from work and got cleaned up and sat down, and we wouldn't lift a fork until he did, you know. It was just a tremendous amount of respect, but uh, they, they were great days. I mean, we never had enough food to eat, but we you know, we made it. My mother, my mother used to have a saying called pass another day, meaning she got us through another day. She did what she had to do. And as a matter of fact, uh, that's going to be a title of my second book, I think. And just what it takes to get through another day. So your dad was an underground coal miner and mom uh, worked at home taking care of your kids. Were, were you a close family? Were you and your siblings close? Oh, extremely, yeah. I, we still are that way today, you know. And uh, they, they, they just did a lot of things. I mean, we never, we just shared everything. I mean, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, there's a lot of love with uh, my brothers and sisters, you know. They, they helped me out enormously. So I'm sure there are people watching and listening from all over the country, and they can't comprehend what life would have been like in the 1950s, growing up, you know, with one of 10 kids in a household where your dad's a coal miner, one of the most dangerous, you know, businesses out there. And you said that, that he had immigrated 
from Italy. So this was a, a true all-American immigration success story. Yeah, when he when he came over on the boat, you know, his uncle in Italy bought him a, a ticket on the boat and the train to go from New York to Trafford, which is the only place he had a relative. And he had uh, two quarters when he got off the boat to, and, and walked to the train station in New York. And he got on the train, he had those two quarters. He couldn't speak English, you know. So the conductor is coming down the aisle with a tray of uh, apples and oranges. And my dad was starving, you know, so he just held out his hand with the two quarters. And the conductor could tell he's an immigrant who doesn't know what's going on. And just took the two quarters, gave him an apple, and went on his way. So when he arrived, he, he was absolutely broke, you know. Wow. It's just, it's almost like an entirely different existence, a whole different world than today. Um, you graduated from high school in what year? 56. So you're there. And, and, and by the way, I'm going to ask you some questions as folks who have not read Hard Days, Hard Nights would, but um, you graduated the year that rock and roll really took off in America. You know, rock Around the Clock, Elvis Presley, uh, you know, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. This is all happening the year you're a senior in high school. What do you remember about that time and, and whether that influenced your move into what you wound up doing for a living? What really, there were a couple things that influenced me, a couple songs. The Drifters version of White Christmas in 1955. Sure. When, you know, they took that sacred song and, and I just thought it was tremendous. And I, I was a junior in high school and I was singing that song and my homeroom teacher, he, he just chewed me up for desecrating that, you know, but I knew that was it. And then when the crew cuts come out with Shaboom, I mean, that was, you know, the four freshmen prior, you know, they, the four freshmen was uh, a jazz oriented group, but you know, they could sing that four part harmony and, uh, but they, they didn't sing rock and roll, of course. But then when uh, the crew cuts and the, originally the chords came out with Shaboom, I mean, that was, that was earth shaking, you know? And I knew that I had to form a group at that time and write songs and perform like that. Did you ever have the opportunity later on in your career to meet Bill Pinckney from the Drifters and tell him, you know, as a kid, I used to sing your version of White Christmas. Did that, did that kind of thing ever come around, or did you ever meet the crew cuts and talk to him about it? Uh, no, no. I, it isn't that amazing. No, I never, I never even, uh, I never played the crew cuts. Uh, I, I played the freshman. As a matter of fact, I, I, I credit the freshman as my absolutely first concert that I did. It was, I never forget the date. It was Tuesday, May the 8th, 1962 at Stanball Auditorium in Youngstown, Ohio, and I lost $900. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a beautiful room. I've actually done a couple of shows at Stanball Auditorium there on the campus. It's a, it's a great room. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the the beginning uh, of, of your concert promotion career, because that's really, and you talk about this a lot in Hard Days, Hard Nights, which, by the way, available from Headline Books and uh, everywhere books are sold. 
you talk about your business as a concert promoter, even from the earliest days, I mean, it's, it's a gamble every time. And so what in the world would make a poor Italian-American kid who's struggling for a meal to get into a big gamble like that? Well, think about it. I had absolutely nothing. And what did I have to lose? I mean, for me, first of all, what I found out was most people were not willing to take the chance. Most people wanted uh, a job. They wanted to get paid for 40 hours work. Right. And I thought to myself, I saw what people were like. I mean, you can't make a living working 40 hours a week for somebody else. And I very early in my life said, I will not work for somebody. I will make money on my own. And, you know, that's just what I was determined to do. And what where I really started... Uh, was um, managing some acts and uh, uh, acting as an agent. I would get 10%, you know. So I'd book a band at a club in Pittsburgh, and I got $150 a night for them. I made $15. And I know that that wasn't a lot of money, but, you know, I started getting other bands, and pretty soon every band in Pittsburgh wanted me to represent them. And that's what I was doing. And then I discovered, well, there's colleges and colleges pay more money. So I would uh, book a, uh, an act in a college and get a thousand dollars. And then I found out if I package a show, like if I put three acts together, and I buy them all individually. Nobody knows how much I paid any of the act. So I found out I could buy an act for a whole week for $7,000 instead of paying them $2,500 for a Saturday night. That worked the whole week for less money. So I started buying the acts for the whole week. And I would sell them to buyers and, uh, and you know, $2,000 a night and once I could not sell I promoted those shows myself in towns like Wheeling or Weirton or Clarksburg or Parkersburg or Johnstown you know and and so next thing you know I was promoting concerts in like five states uh, with my own shows Pat DeCesar is our guest the book is Hard Days Hard Nights it's available from Headline Books and uh, the Caesar Engler Productions, one of the preeminent concert promoters from the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, all through the Midwest. And back then, it was much different than now, where if you went into a certain region, as you know, Pat, promoters sort of staked out their own territory. Um, uh, you know, in that time in the late 80s, early 90s, I was a little south of you, and the Lashinsky brothers had that yeah. Charleston area. And I'm sure you remember Phil. Um, how yeah. did that work? How did you guys divvy up different parts of the country back then? Well, it was more or less out of respect. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't go into his territory. He wouldn't come into my territory. And then he was friends uh, with uh, somebody else I knew who, who ran Dick Clark's operation. And he had the circus and a couple other things. And uh, so... He had shows that I could promote, 
and I wouldn't entertain him. And then in Philadelphia, you know, there was Larry Maggot, uh, Electric Factory concerts, and and then in Buffalo was uh, the infamous uh, Harvey Weinstein. That's and, right. Uh, Harvey Corky Productions. Harvey and, and his brother, uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So you you respected everybody's territory in Cleveland with the Balkans. You um, you talked about Dick Clark, and early in your career, you put together some of those package shows. You know, he, he during his American Bandstand days did those cavalcade of stars shows. But you were involved with Dick in doing your own. Uh, I think you called them Shower of Stars type shows. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And what we what we figured out was we thought at the time. You see, uh, the Civic Arena was built in 1961, and it had a capacity at that time of 12,500 seats. And everyone thought, hey, that is entirely too big for a concert. So you're never going to fill it up. Well, that meant you had to put, uh, you know, 10, 12, 15 acts on the show. And uh, to, 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 you know, have enough, create enough demand. And that we would only do what we called uh, the back-to-school showers. So it was like the Easter back-to-school shower, back shower stars and the Thanksgiving, the Christmas, the, you know, the summer. And we thought, well, Pittsburgh can only handle four large concerts a year. That's all the money that people have for entertainment. And the ticket prices were very low. I mean, you know, buck fifty, two fifty. And um, of course when the Beatles came, you know, that that sort of changed. But uh, at, at the beginning ticket prices were low. You and, know, Pat, you've probably heard this before, but um, that that Beatles show that you were involved in in Pittsburgh, that's a seminal moment in tens of thousands of people's lives. As a matter of fact, literally just a few weeks ago, and, and I had no idea we'd be having this conversation, I talked to a young lady who had grown up in the southernmost part of West Virginia, and she and her girlfriend were 14 years old, and she remembers distinctly her parents driving, I think then it was a seven-hour drive, there was no interstate highway, all the way up to that show, at two 14-year-old girls, the parents waited outside, and she still to this day, she's 70 years old now, has the KQV tickets, remembers it distinctly, has the pictures. I mean, that was uh, etched in her mind. And for you to look back on being that involved in something that was so important to so many people, does that ever give you pause? You think, you know, had I not been there, that may not have happened. You know what? Yeah. I, at the time, when I thought about the Beatles, I didn't, had no idea. I I knew they were going to be big. But I had no idea they were going to have this kind of impression upon people. And uh, you know, I just thought their music was extremely different. See, up, up until that time, the Americans thought the British were really corny when it came to music. They you know they laughed at their music. So uh, so when. You know, John and Paul started when they became very big in England. They were not satisfied until they would become big in the U.S. 
and they didn't um, they didn't want to consider anything about the U.S. and until they were really sure about it. But uh, I never witnessed anything like that in my life, and probably never will. The effect that they had. Uh, you know, parents were divided. Some people thought it was the end of the world. You know, their kids were, you know, going to drop off the deep end with these <laughs> guys. You know, some of them loved the music, but, yeah, it was really incredible change, cultural change as well. At that time, was that the biggest financial gamble you had taken? Yes, it was because... The, the the way normally what I would do when I booked a concert, um, I, I would I would book the act and I had built up a reputation with the agents in New York who represented the major talent and they sort of trusted me. So they never asked me after a while they never asked me for a deposit. So if you were to book an act and the act was $10,000, you would have to send a $5,000 deposit in advance. Right. And then you would pay the act the other 5000 prior to then going on stage. So I developed this relationship with the uh, agents, the big agents, that if they needed a favor, they had to book an act somewhere on a Wednesday night. You call me, I'm going to fill that date for you somehow. I'll find a buyer. If not, I'll promote it myself. So, uh, you know, they trusted me. So in many cases, they never asked me to put up a deposit. Now, the Beatles were different. The Beatles didn't trust any American. Um, they sort of had a chip on their shoulder, you know. Uh, the agent was uh, very careful because here the agent was dealing with the most treasured value here uh, in music and uh, it was you know it was an American uh, man, agent who who brought brought them here convinced them to come and they did not want to come here unless they were assured that they were number one in America and that they would sell out. And they really were, were scared to death of that. Sure. And so I had called them. I called the manager and I called them back in November, November of 63, around the time John Kennedy was killed. I remember this day because of that. And, um, they, I was working in the record business at the time, and I ran across another person who introduced me to the Beatles when I was on the road promoting some other acts. And I said, "Well, you know, that's a really, really great act, I said, a great song." He, he played me like "Love Me Do" and uh, a couple of those early Swan things and DJ things, and uh, and he said. Uh, that's, that's a group called the Beatles. I said, I never heard of them. I said, but, you know, they sound pretty good. And so when I came back to Pittsburgh, I said to uh, my partner, the guy I worked for, and the guy I did some concerts with, I said to him, hey, I just heard a great act. I'd like to book it for the Civic Arena. 
And he said, well, what's the name of the act? And I said, the Beatles. And he said, I never heard of them. And I said, yeah, I know, no one else. And he says, and you want to book them for the arena? I said, well, I want to book them six months from now to a year from now. And I said, they're going to be big. And so eventually, uh, I talked him into it. So we called um, we called the William Morris Agency, you know, the largest agency in the U.S. and in their New York office, and they never heard of the Beatles. And, and so we called a few others, and um, and so finally, people said, "Well, let, let us look into it," you know. And finally, we was so at this time. I mean, they they were agreeing to come now at this time uh, say we had a headliner in the u.s like uh, uh gene pitney for example he was one of our headliners and we right. would pay him three thousand five hundred dollars a night to be part of the show it'd be he if we had 10 acts on the show he would close the show it'd be the star of the show his fee was a flat $3,500, no matter how many tickets we sold. So, um, with the Beatles, when we approached them about, uh, you know, uh, coming to the U.S. on this tour, um, they said, after they considered this, it took a long time, they said, we want $35,000 a night. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot of money today, but that was astronomical. That was 10 times more than any other Americans got as a headliner act. Got it. They just wanted to prove it. It wasn't about the money. What they were wanted to prove was that the uh, British artists were 10 times more powerful, especially like the Beatles, where the, they, they wanted to prove that they were the biggest act in the world. And they got it. Well, you know what we did? We, we said to them, look, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll give you 20000 against 60% of the gross. And we gave them the opportunity to make more than 35000 And they actually ended up making 38000 on our, our deal, the way they made it. We get a $20,000 guarantee against 60% of the gross after certain deductions, and they ended up getting 38000 Matt DeCesar is our guest. We're talking about his book, Hard Days, Hard Nights. He's the guy that brought the Beatles to Pittsburgh, uh, along with the Rolling Stones and Alice Cooper and Sly Stone and on and on and on. He's one of the most legendary concert promoters as well as agents and artist managers in the Midwest in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, we're simulcasting today's show on the Zoom into Books online program. And if you have any questions, we'd love to have them. Just uh, email them in or text them in or message them in, and we'll ask Pat your questions. And we'll also, uh, I'd love to show some of the pictures from your career. So if Ashley back in the home office can throw some photos up, I want to ask you about some of the talent that you've worked with. But as those pictures come up, Pat, you had said in your book that really you didn't hang out a lot backstage. You said lots of promoters, you know, they would promote shows for next to nothing just for the opportunity to be in a photo with some big star. That was the thing that was the furthest from your mind. You're in the box office making sure that 
the money happens the way the money happens for you. This was a business. This was not hobnobbing with celebrities. Well, and you're right. You know, uh, to me, it was called show business. The act was a show. I was the business. And that's the way I preferred it. I was strictly business. I didn't want any side benefits. I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to take advantage of any of the extra things that went on. Uh, I just wanted to get the show on and over with. I wanted to pay my bills that night so that everybody knew if they, they worked for Path of Caesar, you were getting your money. You, you didn't have to argue for it. You know, like, that's like Chuck Berry. I mean, he was, he was the worst to deal with. I mean, this guy wanted cash in small bills and he wanted that cash on he wanted me to give him the cash on the side of the stage right before he would go on and he would look out the audience and he'd say to me you're sold out huh? and i'd say yeah he's well i want another two hundred dollars and <laughs> you know what was i gonna do say no because i give him an extra 200 bucks but he would do that every time. Uh, he, he was he was a creep. There were a few people that were that way, but you had to take care of business. Had to get it done. We're we're looking at some pictures now of of sort of the the melee out in front of the Beatles show, and there was a, a poster up of KQV as the presenting radio station. Pat, I come from radio. You have deep relationships in radio the way it, it used to be. How? important was radio in filling up those concerts in Pittsburgh and in your other markets back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? It was extremely important. Uh, I had to maintain a great relationship with the radio station. And in Pittsburgh, I had two main stations, KDKA, which really got way out there, and KQV. KQV played more of the music I liked. It, you know, it didn't have quite the power, but it it was the right audience for me, and both of them, KDK and KQV, wanted to present this show. And so what what we did, we made a deal based on future shows. So we present to both of the stations, if you take this show, I don't want to pay regular rate card. I'll pay you $750 a show. And KDK... KDK said, no way, you know, KQB said, yeah, we'll do it. So I just went with KQB, and they did a tremendous job. What do you remember about the the folks that were around the Beatles when they came to Pittsburgh? Uh, you know, that group is so seminal in, in popular music history that even the, the secondary and tertiary figures that were around them, you know, Mal Evans, who was their roadie, or Brian Epstein, who was their manager, those names are almost as well known as the Beatles themselves. What do you remember about the folks that traveled with the Beatles? Well, unfortunately for me, when the Beatles, I booked them in February for September 14th. And at the time, the Vietnam War was building up. And uh, I got a uh, call to go in for a physical. And I tried to join them. My brothers were all in, my older brothers were in the Marine Corps. And I tried to join the Marine Corps when I was in college 
reserves and I failed the physical and and those guys told me hey the army isn't even going to take you so don't ever worry about getting drafted but they escalated the war and uh, I got a draft notice and uh, I got drafted and uh, the, the uh, I passed the physical and they said tomorrow you're, you'll be on active duty so I, I mean my world ended <laughs> and so when 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 uh, the Beatles played, I was in you know I was trying to stay alive with a rifle. You know, a lot of the music that you promoted uh, was against the backdrop of of the Vietnam War, and then of course the race riots that happened in the late '60s, and uh, which unfortunately we're having those protests and riots again today. When people look back at that music of that era, Pat, it's it's intertwined with what was happening in Vietnam and what was happening with, with those assassinations and, and on and on. I, I wonder when you look back on the music of the sixties from, from bands like the doors and Jimi Hendrix and these other acts that uh, the Rolling Stones that you promoted, do you think about Vietnam? Do you think about the music? How is it all mixed in your mind? Yeah, well, I uh, have dismissed, uh, the army from my mind completely. So I never, I never think about those years. And when it comes to music, unfortunately, it was such a business for me that I never permitted myself to have the luxury of enjoying music. I was taught by my mentor, Tim Tormey, who I worked for since I was 18 in the music business that you don't listen to music for your own enjoyment. You only listen to music to see if others want to hear that and pay money to buy a ticket. So I, I just, I never listened uh, for enjoyment. I, I, and I still don't. I mean, it's, if I listen to music or talk about it, it's like, I, I want to think, wow, can I sell tickets for this act work, you know? It's a horrible thing, you know, because I missed out on that enjoyment, I think. You know, when you talk to people in the television and the film business, it's very much that way. They can't go to a movie without critiquing the movie to look for the camera angles and the lighting and all that. And, and I can certainly see where that would have been the case for you. Um, I, I would be curious, though, to know, if you can give us some stories about some of the talent that you work with, for example, do you have any stories uh, about maybe the, the biggest divas or the biggest egos that you work with in the music business back then? Uh, yeah. Well, there, you know, there, there were a lot of, I'd like to think there were a lot of nice people. I'm, I'm trying not to be too critical. Um, well, let's start with that then, Pat. Let's start with the nice guys. When you look back on all those years, who were the nice guys? Maybe nice guys and nice ladies that would surprise you. Yeah, well, the thing of it is, is the earlier years of rock, they were nice because they really appreciated what we did for them. I mean, my job was, think about this. There were a ton of record companies, right? So... They all had, they all had uh, uh, releases, you know, they, they all had a hundred artists on their label and then they had these releases 
And uh, so maybe one in a hundred, or maybe even one in a thousand, became a hit. And, and so uh, my job was to make their their song, you know, get their songs played and make them hits. So, um, but the earliest, so I, I, I sort of, my favorites were like on the, the ones that we represented. Now that would have been in my early days, like uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, the McGuire sisters, uh, Lawrence Welk. And I tell people Lawrence Welk is one of my favorite artists. And the reason is he was such a gentleman. He just appreciated everything that you did for him. Uh, you know, like these other acts, they would want they would want a uh, limousine to pick them up, or and um, he would just say, "Well, I'm just pick me up with your car." You know, he was just down to earth, nice guy. And so I appreciated things like that. I, uh, I'm looking at a, a Caesar Angler ticket right now. All mostly the non-rock acts were nice people. Tony Bennett, Perry Tomo, and I know that's not what my, my sons would say to me, Dad. When people ask you that question, please don't say Lawrence Walk. <laughs> I started saying Bruce Springsteen. Because Bruce is a nice guy, and he's universally well accepted. He is just a nice guy, you know. But that's why I say you can't go by me because, you know, I'm burnt out. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Springsteen. I'm looking at a Springsteen ticket stub from a show that you promoted in 1975. Uh, if you bought it in advance, it was $5.50, and it went up a whole buck to six fifty at the door. Do you remember what in 1975 you paid to bring Bruce Springsteen to your town at Keystone Hall? Repeat that. I'm sorry, Elisha. So, if tickets were six dollars and fifty cents to see Springsteen in 1975, you must not have paid much to bring Springsteen to town in 1975. You know, the first year that was the first year I played him. I, the first year I actually played was 1974. No one even knew who he was. And uh, I played him at Kutztown State Teachers College out in Eastern PA. And uh, there was a kid there that was uh, the entertainment director, a student, but he had worked for me um, as an intern while he was a student. And he was telling me about this Springsteen character. And he said, hey, you got to bring this to Kutztown. I says, you know, how big is it? He said, 4,000 seats. I said, oh, man. Uh, you know, you think he could do that? And he said, oh, yeah, you, you should do two dates. So I called the agent. You know, I thought he was crazy with the two dates. And the agent wanted $5,000. And I said, oh, my God. You know, that's a lot of money for no name. And uh, I, because typically opening acts or something, uh, new acts, I could buy for $500 or $750. And the agent said, you won't be sorry. So I took the two dates and they sold out instantly, you know. And uh, I mean, the tickets were reasonably priced. Uh, I, that was my problem. I, you know, I sold the tickets too cheap, but uh, you know, I'm not bitter about that. That is I mean, I guess, one of the most legendary. Prices, they're sickening. I don't know why people 
pay the hundreds of dollars for tickets. The only thing I could think is that there's credit cards today that, you know, even kids can get or younger people, whereas no one could get that. Kids could never, no one had credit cards. Even adults for the longest time didn't have credit cards. I see a ticket price of $5.90 to see the Beatles when you brought them to town. And, and it's, it's almost unimaginable now that you could make a living, but you made a very good living. You had lots of successes, but Pat, I'm going to ask you something that maybe a lot of people have never asked you. Let's talk about your biggest failure. What, what did you lose the most on in the concert business? Who did you bet on and bet big and it just didn't pay off? Well, my, my, I had this friend, Eddie Leffler, and he was the manager of like, uh, uh, Eddie Van Halen, uh, uh, at the time. And, um, uh, what the heck's his name? Uh, his wife has got the red hair and she's on one of those shows, uh, morning talk shows, uh, and I'll think of his name. Um, anyway, there were the three of them and, um, he, he put the show together and he said to me, uh, listen, I got a great ballpark show. And, and he said, I want you to play it in Pittsburgh and, you know, I'll, uh, I'll give you the, you know, a good deal on this show and all this and that. So I said, you know, I don't feel really good about the show, but uh, I'll do it. And and uh, it was uh, it was called the Monsters of Rock. And, sure. Uh, and um, I lost uh, four hundred ninety-seven thousand dollars on it. That was my biggest loss. $497,000 on one concert. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, people, they come to a concert and they, they see, you know, you might sell out an arena, 15,000, 20,000 seats, and they think you made a million dollars. And they don't realize, you know, it's the last 500 seats that, that I need to sell before I make any money, you know. Yeah, I could sell... You know, 14,500 seats. That doesn't mean I made any money. Yeah, you're the promoter is the last guy to get paid. I remember that Monsters of Rock tour, though, and there was enormous press. Van Halen was the headliner, and, and there were a bunch of other acts on there. I think Skid Row and Kingdom Come, all those big hair bands of that time. And, um, and it obviously didn't do well in your market. Did you, because you were a Pittsburgh guy and you knew those, those markets – in and around Pittsburgh, for the most part, Pat, would you say that you could read the tea leaves and you had a pretty good handle on, on which acts could sell hard tickets and which acts were only soft ticket sellers, you know, the ones that, that could fill up a free county fair, but no one would pay a ticket for it? Did, did you come to, to get a pretty good handle on that overall? Yeah, you know what, you're right. And, and I was, uh, so when I was 18, I got a job promoting records for these several record companies I worked for. My job was to go to all the radio stations and record stores in Pittsburgh and the tri-state area. So I traveled 
all through parts of West Virginia, Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania to radio stations and record stores when those things existed. Right. So I knew what people wanted. And that was a big plus for me. So I, I could tell what to bring in for, you know, a personal appearance. And I, I lost money uh, on the first three shows that I did because they were not rocked. I mean, I learned a lesson that you, you have to play uh, what the people want to hear, not what the a manager of the theater wants you to bring in or the radio station wants you to bring in. You have to know your audience. And, uh, you know, I, I lost money in the first three, and then the next one was the Beatles. After that, I did the Stone. Well, after you do the Beatles, everybody wants you to deal with them. You know, I sure. did the Janis Joplin's and the Iron Butterfly and all those. And then I started doing the ballparks. No one did the ballparks. Well, there was one, um, uh, what's his name, did the Beatles at Shea Stadium in 65, and no one was doing much. Sid Bernstein, uh, right. Yeah. That was Sid Bernstein that did the Beatles at Shea Stadium. You're right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Pat so DeCesar is our guest today. The book is Hard Days and Hard Nights. Pat is a legendary concert promoter. Uh, music manager, agent, uh, worked in the, the record label business for many years, and brought everybody who was anybody to a variety of venues in and around Pittsburgh for over 30 years. And uh, as we continue to, to look at some of these tickets, uh, one of the things that, that strikes me is there were acts that were big in that region back then that never broke out nationally. I just saw a poster for, for B.E. Taylor, for example, who who played in and around that area for years, couldn't get arrested outside that area. Uh, Joe Grishecki and the House Rockers, one of my favorite bands. Uh, you know, Donnie Iris, um, the original Shondells, all from that area, uh, area, and, and they didn't make it outside that area. So how important were local and regional acts to you? The Jaggers is another group from your town that, that you know, that did have one big national hit, but wound up, you know, sort of being a local Pittsburgh act. Those local Pittsburgh acts, what made them special and how important a part of they were uh, to the mix of your business? Well, you know what? Um, they would then play uh, the smaller venues like the clubs, and uh, which was great for the music scene in Pittsburgh. I kept on going. Uh, I was typically... Uh, promoting the larger venues, uh, you, you know. So, I after a while I stayed away from the clubs, uh, but I did I did promote those acts. I put them on a lot of uh, concerts uh, that you know a support artists or something like that. And I mean I had headlined them too at various times. But yeah, Luke Christie came uh, from there. Um, the Marcells of Blue Moon, and like you say, Donnie Iris, and um, uh, well, the Jaggers had that big hit. The Bogues had several big hits. But uh, the Skyline, since I don't have you, was one of the all-time first. And they, well, Jimmy just died last year, but they, they did a lot of work. You know, they, they were a favorite, around, especially around Pittsburgh. 
Hey, Pat, let me ask you about um, the difference back then in promoting African-American acts. I know you brought the Temptations in to play at your Shower of Stars. You brought in Junior Walker and the All-Stars, Sly and the Family Stone. And it's, it's almost unfathomable today to imagine that in the 1960s and early 70s, the way those acts had to uh, be handled differently in, in certain markets, certainly in the South, but I wonder what it was like for you to bring in some of those seminal black acts into, into Pittsburgh and, and uh, other parts of Pennsylvania, West Virginia and Ohio back in the day? Yeah, well, you know, in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh was definitely not a problem. I mean, I didn't even know about that it should be a problem until I went uh, into Virginia. And um, I, I, I come across the guy and, uh, and <laughs> I stupidly said to him something. He, I, he, he, he was a big deal there, you know, and, uh, in the music scene. And I said, hey, what do you guys, why do you have a problem? Uh, why is there a problem here with Negroes? And he flew up out of his chair and his chair flew back at the wall. He pointed at me, he said, what you say? You know, and of course I repeated and he said, that's not what they're called. You know, then he used an N word and he said, now, let me hear you say, you know, the N-word. And that's what you do here, you know. And you don't want to do that, then get out of here. Don't do business here. And if you ever bring anybody here, they cannot do this. I'm telling you right now, don't try to get a hotel here. Don't try to go to a restaurant. And sure enough, that's the way it was. The Marcells had two blacks and two white guys. They pull in the restaurant. The white guys had to go in the restaurant, get the food, take it out to the car, and so the black guys could eat. The black guys could not go into the restaurant. The same way with the hotels. The white guys stayed in the white hotel. The black guys had to go across the tracks. And the audiences, so recently, I'm, I'm going back to 1960. Uh, the whites got to sit on the, the, the you know, down front and the orchestra floor. The blacks had to go sit up in the second balcony. Just incredible to even think about that in today's world, and especially with what's happened in the last couple of months. And 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 yet, you know, we know it's real. And, and you look back in those times, and certainly things have, have come an awful long way. Um, let me ask you about something else that that you may or may not be able to talk a whole lot about, and that is, in the 1960s, there were many record companies. Um, they weren't corporately owned like the big three are today. And there was, let's face it, there was an organized crime influence to getting records on the radio, songs played and, and butts in seats at, uh, at concerts because of the mob influence in the music business. There were, you know, infamous guys that were involved there like Morris Levy and Roulette Records. What can you tell me about your experience um, with, with the mob's influence in the music business in and around Pittsburgh back in the 60s and 70s? You know, Pittsburgh, um, and Pittsburgh uh, wasn't like New York. I mean, no one was like Morris Lee. 
I mean, he was the ultimate gangster, you know. Um, but what guys did, because for like record companies, like I knew this one guy, he had a small label. Was, well, as a matter of fact, you see it right there on the screen, Phoebe. And I, I recorded, you know, he recorded several of my acts there. And uh, he would just pay certain disc jockeys at that time, I'm going back into the 50s, he just had them on his payroll at $200 a week. He would deliver $200 cash to key disc jockeys. And he never told them what to play, but he, you know, those guys knew they had to play any of the records he produced to get their 200 bucks every week. And of course, the biggest you know, Crook was, uh, what's his name in uh, Cleveland, uh, Alan Freed. Alan Freed? Yeah. And he was like, he was more demanding openly, you know, and then Morris Leedy had a deal with him. And a lot of the deals were, um, uh, what Morris would do is, let's suppose, um, one of his artists came out with a record and Morris would give uh, the DJ 3,000 free records and say, here, you make this a hit, you sell these records for a dollar, you know, you make 3,000 bucks, you sell them for 50 cents, you make 1,500. And, um, a lot of these guys did that. They had their, they had their regular customers like jukebox operators and record stores, and maybe they sold it for sixty cents a record. But Morris Levy didn't care. You know, he he uh, the record might have cost him ten cents to press. And you know, the the stories are legendary about guys like him having so much control over people you work with, like Tommy James, and and you know swindling Tommy James and Shondells out of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. Were you ever scared, personally scared, to work around that mob influence and to be that close to these people that were so dangerous? No, because I knew people, they weren't mob related, but they were record, they were important people in the record industry that he would not want to uh, upset. And I just, I stayed away from him. I just didn't want anything to do with him. Uh, I had a good friend that was a producer there, Jimmy Wisner. Jimmy produced an awful lot of hits for him. And Jimmy would keep me apprised of Morris's doings. And we knew never to, you know, get involved. You just stayed away from this guy. And I remember when... The Sean Dales, when when Tommy James came out with um, Hanky Panky, it, it nothing happened. And then two years later, it was picked up in Pittsburgh, and Nick Sensi promoted it and made it a hit. And someone had called me and asked me if I could get them this Tommy James because never nobody ever heard of him. And now all of a sudden he's becoming a big star. So I, I booked him. I found him in uh, Indiana 
the state of Indiana, and I brought him to Pittsburgh, and I booked him at several different places, and he said to me, hey, there are no Sean Dells. He says, those guys are gone a couple of years ago. He said, I haven't played for years, and uh, he said, I'm surprised the song's a hit. <laughs> Can you get me a backup in? I said, yeah, I have these guys in in, in Greensboro. They're called the Rack on Tours, and I use them a lot to back up different bands. So they got together, and um, uh, they, they worked for that weekend. And on Monday morning, when the act, would come into my office to get paid for the weekend. They said to me, Hey, uh, Tommy James would like us to be the Sean Dells. <laughs> and I told him that we were signed to you with a personal management contract and an agency contract. And they didn't even have to say anymore. I just pulled out my file cabinet, got their contract, and tore it up, handed it back to them. And I said, here, you know, I don't want to hold you up because I know that song's going to be a number one smash across the country. I says, but um, tell me, where's he going to go? Uh, who's going to, whose labels this song going to be on because it's up for grabs? And he said to me, Roulette Records. And I, I said, who's going to be, who's going to manage your act? And he told me the name. And I says, look, I'm going to tell you something. I, I'm not trying to break anything up, I says, but you picked two wrong people. You're, it, this is just not going to be any good. You're not going to get paid. And you know what? They didn't care about it. And at that time, these acts, especially the black acts, they knew they weren't getting paid. And no one cared about it. No one paid them. And so six months later, they came into my office with their royalty statement. They sold a million three hundred thousand copies of Hanky Panky. The second record was out. They sold six hundred thousand of that. They sold about fifty thousand of an LP. The royalty statement showed that the Sean Dells owed Morris Levy six hundred dollars. They How about that accounting? Records, and they owed the record company money. Just crazy. They said to me, what can we do about this? I said, you know, I told you when you come in here, this, this guy's with the Jewish mafia. There's nothing you can do with this guy. You can't say one word. So they, the manager said, well, I'm not going to put up with that. You know? So he goes to Morris Levy's office. He just barges in. And my friend Jimmy Wisner is with Morris in Morris' office. And Jimmy Wisner is telling this story. The, uh, the secretary buzzes Morris and said, hey, you know, the Shondale's manager's here, and he wants to see him. And Morris says, does he have an appointment? No. Tell him I can't see him. So the next thing you know, the manager pushes through the office door, and, and he because up to Morris with that statement in his hand of the royalties showing that the Shondales owed him 600 he said, Morris said, wait one minute. He picks the phone up, he dials the secretary, and he says, you know, send Guido and Luigi in here. And in come these two big guys, right? 
One picks up uh, him, uh, the manager, by the throat and slams him up against the wall. And he pulls his fist back. You know, he's going to punch him. And Morris Levy says, now, what, what were you telling me now? What do you want? And, he, you know, he's just pleading for his life. And Morris says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to let you out of this. You tear up your contract with the Shondells. You're no longer their manager. You no longer have anything to do with them. You know, and that was the end of it. But to this day, he never paid them. And Morris never paid them. And there was nothing Tommy could do about it. So you you juxtapose that sort of scene from 1960s music to to you selling your company in 1999, and 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 then we fast forward 20 years to today, where the music industry has become very corporate. That it's you know it's huge publicly traded companies. They're essentially two big concert promoters throughout the world. There are three record companies left. There are only a couple of radio companies that run all the radio stations in the world. You don't have those colorful characters like Morris Levy, and you don't have maybe the organized crime. Now you have sort of this organized uh, big business kind of crime. And, and I wonder, are we in a better place now, or are we not in a better place? No. No, because you know what? There are fewer shows today. When I was in the business... Heck, I um, I bought the Stanley Theater, so I had in in downtown Pittsburgh, thirty five hundred seat theater, and what I wanted to do was create shows to fill that thing, so that I could survive, and I did that, and for uh, five years. Uh, I won that theater won the theater of the year in its category across the U.S. For the, we would create so many acts, so many shows that people never heard of. We would put two and three different acts together that we just felt strong about, you know, and they would sell out the place, and it, it was just amazing. I mean, people would call us and say from other cities across the other promoters, you know, and saying, well, how'd you put that together? But it was, it was a great, great place. And, uh, we never had a problem with, uh, patrons or police. The city loved us. The restaurants loved us. We brought a lot of people into town. And then I, I was always, people always associate me with rock and that's true. But I sort of always loved the theater. I loved Broadway. And uh, uh, so I thought, nobody is doing Broadway in Pittsburgh. Heinz Hall, which is supposed to be the cultural theater, it, they couldn't do it because they, you know, they were doing the symphony, the ballet, the opera, which took up their time. You, you get into Broadway, you get a, a, a top show, they want to come into your theater for a month. You have to give them a month of time. And Heinz Hall didn't have that. So I went after uh, that type of business. And I won the theater of the, for, uh, the award in Pittsburgh for bringing back Broadway to Pittsburgh. So when the Benham did buy the Stanley Theater from me, they were able to continue uh, 
of the Broadway series. One last question before we uh, we wrap up, and we've been talking with Pat DeCesar about his book, Hard Days and Hard Nights from Headline Books on this very special Zoom into Books. And, and that is, I want to ask you, Pat, about what's happening in, in today's world in the music business. You talked about uh, your love of Broadway, and it, it was just announced yesterday that Broadway is, is canceled all performances in New York until January of next year. Um, concerts, by and large, you know, 95% of those are off. You know, all of my entertainer clients uh, are off tour. All the behind the scenes people, thousands, tens of thousands of sound companies, lighting companies, uh, ticketing companies, you know, tour managers, uh, you know, from top to bottom, the merchandise people, they're all out of work. If you were still doing the concert business today, what would be your answer to this? Would you be able to pull through this? And, and what, what advice would you give to folks that are in the industry today in this incredibly trying time for the entertainment business? Well, you know, I never experienced anything like that in my life. I never, ever thought that that would ever even happen. Uh, but there's nothing you can do. You're out of business. I mean, it's like getting hit with a snowstorm when you got a sold-out show. I mean, you're not going to perform. And here you're going to have a snowstorm for about six months or who knows how long. Right. Uh, you're out of business. You're out of business. I'd hate to be in the business today. What do you think it's going to look like on the other end of this? If you had a, a Pat DeCesar crystal ball, how's it going to change? There, there can't be guarantees like there were before, I can't imagine, uh, with social distancing and all that. Do you, do you have any inkling of how the industry digs itself out of this? No, I don't think it'll ever be the same for a long time. I don't think people are going to risk it. Parents aren't going to let their kids go to those things the way they did. You know, it's, you know, I don't think it's going to return. And if you have an, an artist that appeals to an older uh, uh, clientele, you know, an older ticket buyer, I wonder if those folks will come back out. A legacy act will, you know, folks in the 60s and 70s go to show. They, they won't want to go out. You have to do what Garth Brooks did with the drive-in theater things, I think. It's a whole different world. You had a good run. Any regrets? No, no, I don't. I loved the business when I was in it. I'm grateful. And uh, I did everything I wanted to do, you know. It, uh, but, you know, you, you know, it's not all about money, you know, like, Life isn't all about money. It should be about happiness. And uh, fortunately for me, I was able to mix them both, you know, but I wouldn't do something unless you were really happy doing it. Happy today? Very happy. I got a great wife, Kathy, and she's been through, I mean, we've been together 52 years, so she was there from the very beginning, you know, and that had a wonderful, you know, my mother and father, my brothers and sisters, and now my kids, I got three sons that are fantastic. So it's, life can't be any better. I want to thank you for spending this hour with us and encourage folks, if you love music, you want to get a behind the scenes look at when it all started in the, in the big time concert business. The book is Hard Days, Hard Nights. The author is Pat DeCesar, one of the most legendary concert promoters in the Midwest. Pat, thank you so much for being on our program today. It's my honor. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. You bet. 
I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Special thanks to our friends at Headline Books and also everyone listening to our Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by our friends at speakermatch.com. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, Burke.